Stellar start. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <we're laughs> not, we won't get into it, but technical things we're trying to figure out here. Um, yes. Uh, welcome yes. back. And, okay. Yeah, welcome back. No, I was just going to say for the first time ever, we're recording technically in the same location, but not together because of said technical difficulties. Yeah. So, <laughs> so different. Patty is in my kitchen. <laughs> I am in my bedroom, and you know we're rolling with it. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, we'll make it work. And uh, yeah, yeah and, and sorry, guys, we did not have an episode last week again. And I think we forgot to post an announcement. So it was just. We did because I was like, yeah, I'll post it. And then I didn't because all of the reasons why we didn't do an episode last week prevented me from also posting <laughs> about why we didn't do an episode last yeah. week. Sorry, we're not trying to like withhold. <laughs> it's just, it's just as the world is beginning. I mean, we talked about, well, Scotty and I talked about this, but we started this podcast in the middle of the pandemic when we like really almost literally had nothing to do. So now that the world is starting to open back up a little bit, plates are starting to get full again. And, uh, and a week goes by real fast guys. Yeah. <laughs> a week goes by real fast. Yeah. So. And we've talked about this, like we're not making any like announcements this week but like we want to keep doing the podcast i think for as long as we can but we may have yeah. to like change up the schedule like as you know theater companies start opening again and yeah. i start doing on-ground teaching again so like you know just uh be prepared in the fall we may be talking about going to bi-weekly or something like that but yeah we made any decisions we're just going to kind of play it by ear so yeah okay well i think you're starting this week so I am. We're just going to jump in. I always like forget that we're just going to jump in. And for some reason, it like makes me nervous. Um, <laughs> and of course, I'm I continue to be unprepared. OK, so, you know, I love a cold open. So we're going to start with a, a yet another cold open. So around the 1960s, the U.S. saw a massive spike in violent crimes. And it was actually such a huge spike that the era was even dubbed the golden age of serial killers. Mm -hmm. Cities all over the country saw the spike in crime and it continued to to climb and climb until reaching critical mass in the early 90s, yeah. after which it started a rapid decline and continues to decline today. Yeah. During this time, there were a lot of politicians that ran on this sort of like tough on crime platform and, uh, you know, talking about cleaning up cities and doing all that stuff. Probably one of the most famous was Rudy Giuliani, who ran for mayor of New York City in 1993. And he promised to guy. like bring, yeah, it's, it is so weird to think of what my perception of Rudy Giuliani was not living in New York, not having him mm -hmm. be my mayor, but like thinking of like the presence that he had during September 11th and all of this stuff to fast forward 20 years to and the fucking you know, clown show that he is today. Yeah. And he's got like hair dye dripping down his face and a <laughs> landscape company's parking lot. And yeah. it's just a mess. But so he ran for mayor of New York City in 1993 and he promised to bring down crime and he promised to make New York safe again. And and he seemed like perfectly poised to do this. He'd had a a, a long career as a federal prosecutor. Um, you know, he was he was doing the work in New York City. Yeah, he was really um, famous I, as like a mob prosecutor. Yeah. He brought yeah, down he a bunch 
going after crime organizations. Yeah. Yeah. So before I go any further, I'm going to say uh, just a quick word about violent crime, because that phrase is going to come up a lot during my story. For the purposes of this story, I'm defining violent crime as a crime in which the victim is harmed or threatened with violence. These include rape and sexual assault, robbery, assault, and murder. No one needs to worry. I'm not going to be going into any details about Mm. anything, (laughs) as, (laughs) as odd as that might sound, but that is what we're defining as violent crime. And for the most part, we're actually going to be talking about murder rates for this story. Okay. So thank you for coming to my TED talk about violent crime. Okay. (laughs) So at the time that Rudy Giuliani ran for mayor of New York, the city's uh, rape rates had quadrupled since the 1960s. Mm. Murder rates had quintupled and robbery rates had grown 14 fold. Wow. Yeah. And of course, New York City was not the only city in the country that was seeing their crime rates explode. But a quote in one of the articles that I read said, New Yorkers felt like they lived in a city under siege. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've ever seen any, especially I feel like from the 70s and 80s. Taxi driver is the one that immediately comes to mind. Yeah. And you see in like the subways are covered in graffiti, which I think is cool. But I get yeah. that, you know, <laughs> they probably weren't like, yeah, awesome. Tag all the all the subway trains. And it just it was just a really dangerous place to live. So Giuliani gets elected. And when he does, he picks Boston police chief Bill Bratton Mm -hmm. as the new commissioner of the NYPD. Bratton starts going after like panhandlers and drunks, drug dealers, sex workers, all that kind of stuff. And he's working under this thing that's called the broken window theory. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's um, Scotty, you sound like, you know what that is, but yeah, if anybody doesn't it. know. Yeah. It's basically an idea that if a neighborhood, if an area of a city has a building with one broken window, that that's like the first step in like a devolution right? Uh, into the, into that area being crime ridden. So Bill Bratton really was working under this plan to go after small crimes. And he was doing that with with the belief that it would snuff out the big crime before it happened. Right. And like, what do you know? By 1996, the New York Times reported the New York's <laughs> <laughs> by 1996, the New York Times reported that crime had plunged for the third year in a row. Rape rates had dropped 17%, assault 27%, robbery 42%, and murder 49%. Wow. In like three years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Giuliani gets credit for cleaning up one of America's most violent and dangerous cities. Breton ends up on like the cover of Time magazine. Everybody's like, well, you know, job well done. You rock. Amazing. You've solved crime. But here's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. So New York City actually hit its crime apex in 1990. So that's four years before Giuliani Breton, like the Giuliani Breton team even like started their crime crackdown crime in New York city had already started dropping before Giuliani even like filed his paperwork to run for mayor. And not only that, but cities all over the country were seeing a quote, steady and spectacular decline in crime rates. Mm -hmm. Cities like Washington, DC, Dallas, Newark, and Los Angeles were seeing violent crime rates drop and they had no, you know, Giuliani Batten (laughs) power duo. Just FYI, in case you're curious, which I always am, those cities saw their violent crime rates drop by 58%, 70%, 74%, and 78% respectively. So like, what the fuck happened? You know, how did 
the country like collectively go through decades that brought us, you know, people like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the son of Sam, Jeffrey Dahmer, the co-ed killer, the Golden State killer, the Hillside mm-hmm. Strangler, Night Stalker, BTK, Dr. Death, Richard Speck, Eileen Warnos, Happy Face Killer, like all over the country. People are just like, you know, going berserk with with just the murder, like murder happy <laughs> for like three decades, for three decades. Yeah only to see crime rates drop like a lead balloon after the early 90s. Like, was it the economy? Maybe it was like legalization of abortion. Maybe Nancy Reagan's Just Say No program, like really like Mm -hmm. caught hold. (laughs) Um, You know, maybe it was the extra funding that was going to the police or the industrial prison complex. And like, maybe like the answer might be like a combination of these things, but Maybe also the answer lies in something much, much simpler. Maybe crime rates across America dropped in the 90s because of unleaded gasoline. This is the story of the crime hypothesis. Yeah, I knew you were working your way to this. I'm so excited. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Okay, so sources for this are several articles from Mother Jones by uh, a writer named Kevin Drum. Listen to uh, my story and, of course, the whole episode and then go and read all of these articles. He wrote the original article in 2013 and then did several follow-ups that he put together in one package in 2018. And it's uh, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. An article from Forbes magazine called How Lead Caused America's Violent Crime Epidemic by Alex Knapp. Uh, Wikipedia, of course. An article from Frontline called They Were Sentenced as Super Predators. Who Were They Really? An episode of the Curious City podcast. Uh, an article on Ranker.com, which I think was like the seven or eight most famous serial killers of all time. <laughs> um, an article from Vox.com titled Lead Exposure Caused Crime and Lead Abatement Efforts Reduced It. An article from Rolling Stone titled Why Were There So Many Serial Killers Between 1970 and 2000 and Where Did They Go? An article on, I don't, I think it's a blog, but it's called Crime Traveler. And that uh, the post or the article was titled The Rise and Fall of the American Serial Killer. Hmm. And article from City Journal called My Black Crime Problem and Ours by John DeLulio Jr. Okay. So before I go further in like deeper into the story, I want to say that while I mentioned a ton of serial killers now, uh, just now, it should be noted that serial killers are, of course, just one facet of violent crime that the U.S. saw during this period. Like I mentioned before, sexual assault, robbery, and aggravated assault were also rising steeply at this time. And this story is going to deal with the whole issue of violent crime rather than just serial killers. Right. A couple of reasons for this data about serial killers predating 1960s is kind of it's non-existent. A, yeah. Well, it's a mess because yeah. um, like police precincts and police departments weren't communicating with each other. The right. FBI was like cultivating the language and the theories around serial killers. And also the fact that a lot of serial killers flew under the radar because they were killing people from marginalized communities. Right. And, and generally the gen, like the, the prevailing thought in terms of serial killers is that they generally murder within their own race. This isn't a hard and fast rule. There are definitely people who fall out of that theory. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, they stick to the race that they are. And somebody who was murdering Black people, sex workers, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, like it just 
wasn't nobody was going to put the dots together yeah I mean, the dots i mean that's definitely something i've read kind of in a different context but you know people talk about like why are all the serial killers these white men and mm-hmm. like the answer is like well we don't know that they are those are just the ones that got the publicity because the victims were white women yes yeah absolutely i mean the worst serial killer in american history they've decided at this point is that samuel little who was uh i think uh, he killed up to like 80 people and there was almost all black women yeah over like yeah. four decades or something yeah and there were a lot of you know there were a lot of serial killers who like i said were attacking vulnerable communities like sex mm-hmm. workers like transient people and they just sadly terribly weren't weren't missed uh yeah. which is awful yeah um but we're learning more about it now the last thing i also want to note and as to why i'm not going to super focus on serial killers is because there is a smorgasbord of nature and nurture factors that result in the creation of a serial killer yeah so everything that i'm I'm about to talk about could definitely have exacerbated the problem, but serial killers are a whole other breed. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump in. Tetraethyl lead is a <laughs> gasoline additive invented by General Motors in the 1920s. From everything that I can tell, the only reason for its existence was to keep the knocking and pinging out of high-performance engines. Mm, interesting. Like, that was the problem, and they solved it with leaded gasoline. Mm. Um, it provided an easy and inexpensive way to control octane ratings, and it also had the added benefit of being profitable because the use, the specific use to prevent the knocking and pinging out of high-performance engines, that use could be patented so they could make money off of that. Ah, okay. So in the 1920s, GM starts putting tetraethyl lead into gasoline and, you know, it like stuff is fine. But yeah. after World War II, the U.S. saw a big auto boom. Everybody was buying a car. And so suddenly right. the amount of cars on the road like just explodes and grows and grows and grows. And so there's like a shit ton of cars driving around all of the roads suddenly and they're just churning out lead-filled exhaust. So then we jump to 1994. So fast forward to 1994 and a consultant working for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development named Rick Nevin starts looking into what it'll take to remove lead paint from old houses. So at that point, HUD had been like, hey, like Rick Nevin, can you like figure out what's what it's going to cost to get, get rid of lead paint? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. No problem. Also, like I should state here that lead has obviously been around forever. Yeah. Um, there are jewelry pieces made of lead that date back to the seventh millennium BC. Wow. Yeah. Like the go black go back to tepe. <laughs> Yes, precisely. (laughs) Just a buck long time. The Romans used lead in their plumbing pipes to transport water. It's shown up. Uh, Probably caused the fall of the Roman Empire right there. Quite possibly. Um, It's been used in glass, paint, makeup. Queen Elizabeth I famously used lead mixed with water and vinegar, uh, which creates something called ceruse to achieve her pale look. Mm. Um, And then eventually it shows up in gasoline. Yeah. Almost since it started being used, though, lead was known to have negative health consequences. Greek physician and botanist Dios, hmm, Dioscorides, Dioscorides. Uh, Sounds good to me. Sure. Uh, was. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> sir. Um, was saying as far back as around like 50 to 70 AD that the mind gives way to folks who are exposed to lead. So like this dude's already talking about it and like, hey, maybe we should be careful. And then they were like, no, let's put it in everything. Yeah. 
So back to Rick Nevin. So he's looking in how he's looking into how to get uh, lead paint out of old houses, and he's seeing the research that states that lead exposure in small children is linked with a whole mess of complications yeah. later in life, including lower IQ, hyperactivity, behavioral problems, learning disabilities all of this stuff. And of course, that's why they were looking into getting lead paint out of houses. Yeah. So we know that lead is bad for everybody, but why exactly is it so bad for kids? And um, if you were asking yourself that question, good luck because I'm going to answer it right now. (laughs) So neurological research has found that no amount of lead is safe to have in the body. Like they started being like, they measure lead in the blood by measuring micrograms per deciliter. That sounds tiny to me. Yes. It's tiny. And in the beginning, they were like, you can have like 65 micrograms per deciliter. And then they were like, psych, you should really probably (laughs) not have any more than 25. And then they were like, "Mm, okay, we were wrong. It's 15. And then they were like, uh, we actually think 10 is probably more accurate. And then it was like, no, it's none. I mean, you shouldn't have any lead in your blood. I've heard. And I think this was in, in the context of the Flint water crisis. Mm-hmm. People talking about like science has shown, and this kind of goes along with what you're saying. Science has shown that actually small doses of radiation are less harmful than small doses of lead. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably people who would have opinions about that. I am <laughs> not a radiation nor a lead expert. So mm. I'm just going to say, yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> science people. <laughs> science. If we have any science people out there who'd like to chime in, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. So yeah, so they it goes from 65 to 10 and then they're like, okay, psych, no, it's really not. Like you can't have any lead in your body. So the reason why is that lead promotes cell death in the brain and it prevents mm. calcium ions from doing their job, consequently causing physical damage to a kiddo's developing brain. So what kind of damage? Well, researchers at the University of Cincinnati who have been studying 300 kids over a period of 30 years have found through MRIs that lead exposure is linked to the production of the brain's white matter, specifically something called myelin, Mm. which creates like an insulating sheath around the connections between neurons. And so when the myelin gets degraded, your neurons don't communicate the way that they should, and your brain becomes slower and less coordinated. Another study found that high exposure to lead during childhood when the brain is developing causes permanent loss of gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that handles aggression control, executive functions, emotional Mm -hmm. regulation, impulse control, attention, verbal reasoning, mental flexibility, not a place where you want to to not be a a social person. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. So again, like I mentioned before, in terms of all of the things that make someone a serial killer, even though I just said uh, all the things that don't make you a psychopath, the effects of lead on the brain when coupled with things like poverty, systemic racism, abuse, non-stable home environment, et cetera, make young people who might already be at high risk for a life of crime, even more vulnerable. So, you know, there we go. Okay. That's about as, is that about, that's about as like elemental sciencey brain type of stuff. I mean, kind of all of this is science, but that's, that's the most, uh, you know, the most, yes. Okay. So during this time, Someone at HUD offers where Nevin is doing this research offers that there might be a missing puzzle piece to this whole thing. Um, There had been a study recently about how childhood lead exposure could be linked to juvenile delinquency and what was the biggest sort of atmospheric lead in the post-war era, unleaded gasoline. 
Yeah. So Nevin starts to track some data and read more stories. And he sees that lead emissions from tailpipes tick up steadily throughout the early 1940s through the 1970s. Emissions actually quadrupled at that time. Mm-hmm. And this so is like it's, right at the time that this crime wave is starting. So I'm going to get to that in a sec. Okay. So from the 1940s to through the 1970s, just cars are churning out a yeah. buttload of lead emissions. And as leaded gasoline began to be phased out in the 1970s, the reason why that happened is that Edmund Munsky, who actually was sort of like the father of the 1960s environmental movement, which ended up passing, which like led to the passing of the Clean Air Act of 1970 and the Clean Water Act of 19. 1972 he had some senate hearings and he was like we gotta we gotta do something about this and so mm-hmm. the country was like yeah 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 okay yeah fine we're gonna do something about it that's when leaded gasoline starts being phased out and blood lead levels also drop the graph for this data basically creates like a pretty simple upside down u yeah if you're curious again and i god i hope that you are the rate of violent crime in the country starts to shoot up in the 1960s continues through the 70s and 80s and starts to drop rapidly in the early 90s. This data also graphs into an upside down U that is almost identical to the one charting lead emissions, mm. but with this 20 year difference. Right. I, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I meant is like, yeah, it's, it's affecting the kids. So they're the just 40s. scooting it up. Right. So what you've got is kids exposed to lead in the atmosphere from lead gasoline and lead paint in the 1940s had grown up. So basically and what so you're they, saying is that our parents are psychopaths. Basically. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, they've at least got a shit ton of lead running through their veins. Yeah. And so these kids, these kids who were exposed to all of this lead in the 1940s were now adults and they were about to go on a crime spree that would result in a nationwide crime epidemic. Yeah. But like, hold on. You've got these two graphs, lead emissions, violent crime, both making upside down you, but that doesn't actually mean anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently sales of vinyl LPs rose after World War II and then dropped in the 80s and 90s. And <laughs> I don't think anybody's like trying to be like, long playing albums is why crime went up so crazy. This is a quote from the Mother jo- from one of the Mother Jones articles. Uh, quotes, lots of things follow a pattern like that, no matter how good the fit. If you only have a single correlation, it might just be a coincidence. You need to do something more to establish causality. Yeah. And that is something that comes up a lot in all of the arguments about this. There are a lot of people, and I'll get into some of the reasons uh, why later on, but there are a lot of people who really don't want to give the lead crime hypothesis any credence. And they love to say correlation doesn't equal causality. I feel like I'm like, I'm going to debunk that argument (laughs) during this story. I feel like the evidence is very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Convincing. Yes. I feel like the evidence is very convincing. Okay. So yeah. So you've got these people, you know, being like correlation doesn't equal causality. Well, somebody was doing something about that. In the late 1990s, there's a Harvard graduate student by the name of Jessica Wolpaw Reyes. And she was writing a dissertation based on the relationship between lead and crime. And she starts cold calling all around the country to get data on lead emissions from different states. So quick sidebar, in the 70s and 80s, the Environmental Protection Agency was like, cut the shit and stop polluting everything and (laughs) had like created some pretty serious rules, which led to leaded gasoline use decreasing. Mm -hmm. But unsurprisingly, because 
you know, small government and all that stuff. It wasn't a nationwide thing. And it was pretty much left to the States to figure out how they would do it, when they would do it, in mm-hmm. what way, how fast, how slow, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I feel like I kind of remember this and mm-hmm. like it was real. Like if you went from one state to another, it was like you weren't sure you'd be able to gas up your car because it was right, like- right. Whether or not. So, yeah, like you're saying, states were reducing however they saw fit, which sucks for the environment, but is fucking excellent for Jessica Wolpaw Reyes. Mm-hmm. Because no standard had been created for reducing lead gasoline, Reyes was able to test her theory that in states where leaded gasoline usage declined slowly, crime would decline slowly and vice versa. And that's exactly what she fucking found. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, good old Nevin is busy collecting as much data as he can. And he starts looking into other countries because maybe he'd find some data from around the world to back up his theory. So he checks the lead curve against the crime curve for Australia and it's a match. Mm-hmm. Checks it for Canada and it's a match. Mm-hmm. Great Britain and it's a match. Finland, France, Italy, New Zealand, West Germany, match, 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 match. Mm-hmm. Kevin Drum, who wrote the Mother Jones article, asked Rick Nevin if he had ever found a country that didn't fit the theory. Nevin's response, no, not one. Yeah. So we've got studies that show us national and state data. And then in 2013, Howard Milkey and Sami Zahran published a paper showing the correlation of lead and crime at the city level. Mm-hmm. And Milkey even went into neighborhoods in New Orleans and studied the lead levels. And when he was done with that, he shared his lead maps with local police who laid them over neighborhood crime maps. And they were an almost perfect match so now we've got national state city and neighborhood data right yeah it's pretty fucking convincing yeah okay but let's have more proof and let's get more laser focused Mm -hmm. studies have followed individual children from the womb to adulthood those with higher blood lead levels are consistently associated with higher adult arrest records for violent crimes Mm -hmm. so national state city neighborhood individual person yeah. It's a lot of it. It's a lot yeah. of evidence, guys. You, you, you I mean, kind of can't drill down any further than that. It's a- yeah. I mean, I'm no expert, but that's a lot of evidence. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, like I mentioned before, there were a lot of other theories as to what was causing the crime drop. In 1996, political scientist John DeLulio wrote an article. That's the article that I mentioned before uh, My Black Crime Problem and Ours, BT Dubs. John DeLulio is not black. So, I'm just saying that's an odd title yeah. for that article. <laughs> yeah. I, I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah. But he wrote this article supposing that the nation was hated for a major crime wave because nothing affects, this is a quote, because nothing affects crime rates more than the number of young males in the population. And by the year 2010, there will be about 4.5 million more males aged 17 or under than there were in 1990. Since 6% of young males turn out to be career criminals, according to the historical data, this increase will put an estimated 270,000 more young predators on the streets than in 1990, coming at us in waves over the next two decades. Mm -hmm. So he supposed that we were going to have, he called it a wave of juvenile super predators. Mm, that term and, yeah mm-hmm, and was basically like get ready for it and of course criminologists were like yeah absolutely like this is totes gonna happen but the wave of young men came 
right on schedule. Like the boom of young men came right on schedule and the crime rate just kept dropping. Mm -hmm. So sorry, John DeLulio. Uh, <laughs> you know, wrong. yeah, you got that one wrong. Economists uh, predicted that crime was directly tied to the economy. And they argued that like when the economy is good, crime goes down. And when it's bad, crime goes up. That has been a very common theory with economists mm -hmm. for quite some time. And there has been some evidence to support that idea. That I'm sorry, I tried to say <laughs> idea and theory at the same time. And it came out idea uh, to support that theory. The only problem is, is that the U.S., we've been in a pretty long economic downturn after the financial crisis of 2008, mm -hmm. and crime keeps dropping. Yeah. So there's that. Other studies wanted to tie crime rates in big cities to America's drug problem. This is... Mm, mm. Okay, we'll 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 editorialize when I get done with this when I get done yeah. with this theories. So they wanted to tie crime rates in big cities to America's drug problems, specifically the crack epidemic of the 1980s. Um, the following is not my term; it's the term that I saw thrown around a lot when talking about this theory. These studies essentially said that generation crack mm -hmm. switched over from crack to marijuana and that accounted for the drop in crime. They just mm -hmm. said, you know what? I think I'm done with crack. Pass me that joint. And that was what was responsible for the drop in crime. I feel like we can all see several holes in that theory. Yeah. Let's, let's just like pause and ruminate on that for a second. Like that's yeah. <laughs> incredibly simplistic <laughs> yeah and it's also like i mean I, I again i'm not an expert in crack but my understanding is that it's a it's an addictive drug yeah and so and the deeply deeply addictive yeah so the idea that they that it would really be that they were like you know what i've outgrown it I've outdone crack yeah. but you know what yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take a little toke every now and then yeah the reefer like and like head about my day it's not like marijuana didn't exist before yeah, it's wasn't it's this a weird new theory. magical thing that popped up. Yeah, it's a weird theory. So we've got that one. Uh, then we also have folks like Giuliani and Bratton who wanted to credit the fact that they'd put more cops on the streets. Of course they did. Yeah, right. But several other studies have shown that communities with a more pronounced police present aren't actually safer. No. So. So there's that. Others wanted to give all of the extra prisons that had been opened during this time. Uh, this they So around the 1970s, prisons, I think, kind of started <laughs> popping up everywhere. I think it was like mm -hmm. the new strip mall. So they were <laughs> popping up everywhere. And crime scholar William Spellman wrote that states have doubled their prison populations and then doubled them, them again to the tune of an extra $20 billion per year. So it costs yeah. us an extra $20 billion a year to continue to build all of these prisons to put all of these criminals in. And the thing about that is that higher incarceration rates have diminishing results. Like yeah. putting people in prison has a direct effect on a drop in crime to a certain point. And after that, we're just locking up people without any real impact well, on crime. And I don't have any statistics at hand, but I know that there's a lot of discussion that, you know, one thing you do with like the amount of increased incarceration is you take a lot of nonviolent offenders and you turn them into violent offenders because you yeah. throw, you know, someone with a petty drug charge into general population with murderers. And, you know, I, I mean, yeah. it, it doesn't have a good effect on the psyche, you know? Yeah. Prison doesn't work, guys. Sorry. Um <laughs> 
Then we have uh, we have this next theory, which okay, again, I'll editorialize in a moment. Co-author of the book Freakonomics, a uh, man named Stephen Levitt mm-hmm. teamed up with John Donahue in 1999, and they suggested the drop in crime was tied to Roe versus Wade and the legalization of abortion. Their argument mm-hmm. was that legalized abortion led to fewer unwanted babies, which led to fewer maladjusted and violent young men. I dipped into a couple of Reddit threads that had asked this thing of like, does anybody know anything about like the lead crime theory? Does anybody like, does it hold any water? And it's insane. The number of people that are like lead has nothing to do with it. It's Roe versus Wade. Uh, That seems, uh, I'm you might be getting to it. That just seems like that's opening all sorts of cans of eugenics-y type cans of worms that well, are a little... I mean, I, I like, again, all of these things might have had something to do with the drop in crime, but the thing to remember is that you can directly chart the rise of lead in the atmosphere to the rise in crime 20 years later, and then the minute leaded gasoline starts to come out, like, stops, like, starts... What the hell am I trying to say? The Mm -hmm. minute the United States starts to curb leaded gasoline usage, crime drops. Mm -hmm. I mean, it plummets. Yeah. The data doesn't match up in any way with any of these other theories. Yeah. That's the thing is it's like, because I've I've read glancingly about this theory. That's why I was so excited when you said you're getting into it. You know, and I didn't have all the information, obviously, that you have just presented. But Mm -hmm. what I have read consistently from people who are proponents of this theory is that there is no no data set that so consistently matches yeah than the lead gasoline yeah and there's a graph in one of the several mother jones articles where he basically graphs how everything else prisons cops roe versus wade the economy all of this stuff how like it how it's working and it's still like it it just it it doesn't match up Yeah, It just doesn't match up. Yeah, I will also say that theories, a lot of, this is getting back to serial killers a little bit. um, Theories also exist that say that the reason we saw that the increase in violence during those years actually had to do with World War II veterans who were coming home with undiagnosed and untreated PTSD, Mm -hmm. who then turned around and raised maladjusted children. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a prevailing theory in why we saw the golden age of serial killers when we did, which sounds it's like, I get why it's called that, but I'm like, that sounds awful. It sounds yeah. like it was a grand old time of serial yeah. killers. <laughs> it's like the roaring twenties of and serial I, killers. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely some stuff in there and like, you can look at your, your big serial killers and see that they did have somebody in their life who was some type of combat veteran. So that's a big thing with somebody like Richard Ramirez, who had a cousin who was a Vietnam, who'd fought in Vietnam and like came back. And it's all like, it's all documented that this cousin told Richard Ramirez, like all of the atrocities that he did in Vietnam and all that. stuff. And there's a whole, I mean, so like there's credence to this theory in terms of serial killers. Yeah. But if this was something that could be used globally to cover this crime wave that happened from the 60s to the 90s, we would have also seen a crime epidemic in the children of World War I veterans. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is that we did see, like the U.S. did see a small spike in violent crimes, but it wasn't the crime wave that we saw post-World War II. The difference there is 
Well, you would think if it was, you know, think about Vietnam veterans, they were raising people our generation, and our generation is kind of when the crime starts dropping. So when Mm -hmm. we were getting into our teens and 20s. So, you know, again, it it just doesn't correlate. Yeah. And again, that's why I bring up that like serial killers have like a grab bag of issues, Mm -hmm. like 100%, like I said before, leaded gasoline could have been something that was a factor, but you know, there's, there's so much other stuff that is sort of like the secret recipe for a serial killer. Yeah. So like we can kind of talk about them and kind of not talk about them in this conversation. Right. Yeah. We're Um, not talking about just like, like you said, the city violence, the, you know, dangerous New York. Or gang violence, taxi driver, the warrior yeah. kind of world. Less yeah. Ted Bundy and John Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, so like we've been saying, like the problem with all of these theories is that there just isn't significant proof. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, talking about correlation does not equal causality like that. We're seeing that with all of these theories. Right. But the thing that does have proof is atmospheric lead. Like, I'm sorry, there's just so much proof. Um, And in case you want more of it, I'm going to give you some more. Um, So in the 1800s, barns in the U.S. were usually painted red, but around 1880, because of the newly expanded railroad, farmers were able to get their hands on durable, ready-mixed white paint from Sears and Roebuck that was chalk full of lead mm-hmm. about 20 years later rural homicides shot up nearly matching the homicide rates in cities which had been using lead paint for years yep so there's that lead paint was all of the rage in homes at the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. right on cue we see about 20 years later through the 20s and 30s the u.s sees the start of the first of its two crime epidemics the second is the one that i'm talking about mostly in this story yeah because 30s is like the the era of like John Dillinger and yeah. yeah yep yeah so they think that like lead paint was the kind of the reason for that one leaded gasoline is the reason for the second one Brazil Britain Jamaica and Japan all saw murder rates drop after phasing out or banning of leaded gasoline Jamaica just they started banning leaded gasoline like from 1990 to 2000 their mm-hmm. crime rates are starting to drop now yeah because jamaica i know has been it's it's considered one of the most violent places in like the western hemisphere i think i i know it's definitely got a reputation for crime it should also be stated that there are a lot of other reasons why there's sure. a lot of crime in jamaica but again we but do this see could this. be a factor you know mm-hmm. if we're seeing a drop now yeah right um brazil as scotty you probably know but maybe some of our listeners don't uh after the first arab oil embargo brazil was like fuck this shit and they were like we're gonna switch to ethanol mm-hmm. and um the majority of ethanol got shipped to to Sao Paulo. Mm -hmm. And I I can't remember the year, but by a certain point, like 50% of cars were using ethanol instead of leaded gasoline, massive, Mm -hmm. massive drop in the crime rate. Um, Japan, Japan completely banned leaded gasoline in 1980. Across the US, I don't think anybody was like, banned it tomorrow, you can't find it, we won't have it anymore. They phased it out. Mm -hmm. But Japan was in 1980 was like, nope, we're done. So we're done with it. And that resulted in a generation that grew up completely lead free. Yeah. So Japanese children now have some of the lowest lead exposure of any children in the world. Crime in Japan is so low that the magazine, The Economist, reports that Japanese cops are getting bored. 
<laughs> Another thing to think about is that lead exposure is starting to climb again because of our good old friend gentrification. Mm. Old homes are being renovated and releasing the lead in the pipes, the lead in the paint, the lead in the glass. They're releasing all of that old ass lead into the air, into the soil. So we can probably look. So all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that for all of you gentrifiers out there, I just need you to know that little Brickaden is going to be a serial killer in 20 years. (laughs) Brickaden. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm being 100% a shit about this, but there are absolutely stories of young children getting lead poisoning after mm-hmm. renovations are taking place in their homes. Yeah, like that makes, young ch- the young children of gentrifiers specifically. It makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. So if there's all of this research that gives credence to the link between lead and crime, like why isn't everybody talking about this? Because like you said, like you do a lot of reading, you know a lot of stuff and like you've you've glanced at this topic, but this mm-hmm. is not something that is being talked about all over the place. No, it like, it, it pops up, but it's not, mm-hmm. you know, people, and we'll, I'll, we'll get to it. Like, cause there's this whole like new crime wave that's happening, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've read, you know, so there's this, uh, lead gasoline thing has kind of popped up, but it's always like an aside in, in conversations I hear. It's always like a, almost like an afterthought. It's never like yeah. the subject of like, hey, let's examine this, you know? Yeah. And there are a couple of good reasons. Uh, well, they're not good reasons, but there are a couple of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. The biggest one is that crime reduction is the pet project of a lot of factions. Mm-hmm. Um, criminologists, they do not want the answer to crime to be lead reduction. They mm-hmm. want it to be a sociological mm-hmm. problem. So they want social programs. They want to be able to say, you know, we need to, we need to combat homelessness. We need to combat poverty, which is true. Like all of those things do need to be addressed and attended to. But for reasons other than because they necessarily solve crime. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the researchers, Reyes, Nevins, a lot of the researchers that get talked about in the Mother Jones articles, they're all deeply frustrated by this. Well, and, and my guess, I'm just I'm just imagining, but for the people who, you know, like you said, the criminologists and sociologists who don't want it to be lead, like the easy answer of like just reduce lead. Mm-hmm. is crime is like the easy like if you're trying to move money to your cause like mm-hmm. crime is like one of those easy things everyone understands it and yeah. it doesn't depend on empathy like that's the thing is like right a lot of social policy if you try to depend on triggering people's empathy like we should combat homelessness because isn't it tragic that there are all these homeless people right like people kind of go eh. But if it's like, we need to combat homelessness because the homeless people are crazy and they're going to come after you with machetes, then people are like, right. oh yeah, we need to combat homeless, homelessness. Right, 100%. You know? Yeah, which is pretty, I mean, you know, everything everything else that I'm about to talk about kind of basically works on that same principle. Conservatives want to blame the social upheaval and the counterculture of the 1960s on why mm. crime was so high. You know, sure. that's like, you know, we get Charles Manson and all that stuff and it's like, oh, these fucking hippies and yeah, you know, you blah, these, blah, blah. anecdotal things that people point to right 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 and they want to use all that so that they want to use that as the reason so that they can push to getting back to quote-unquote family values Mm -hmm. police want to tell you that more cops which actually means bigger police budgets Mm -hmm. um is what keeps our community safe we know that that is not true and the industrial prison complex wants to sell you the story that the more bigger prisons that they build the more 
or that will prevent you from becoming a victim of murder. To me, one of the most disgusting concepts is the idea of private prisons, privately run prisons, because like the idea that like your profit depends on how many people you can lock in a cage. 100%. Like that's, uh, it's gross. It's it's it's, gross. It's it's really gross. Immoral. Yes. 100%. I was saying the anti-drug folks uh, Mm want to make you believe that getting drugs off the streets is what the answer is. And that doesn't have anything to do with lead paint or leaded gasoline. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I am one of these people, but I mean, I fall into this group, but pro-choicers want to ensure that access to abortion isn't restricted. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they're like, no legalized abortion and access to abortion is what keeps crime rates down. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't guys like, again, all of these things, access to safe abortions, like we should have that for a whole other slew of reasons other than because it's going to keep your home from bro- getting broken into. Right. Don't use crime as your straw man to make yes. your point when you have all these other yeah, precisely. valid reasons. Yeah. And again, all of these things might help. It's just that none of them help anywhere near as much as their proponents think that they do. Right. The second truth is, is that like lead abatement isn't like sexy. <laughs> No. Yeah. It's, you know what I mean? Like it's a really humdrum solution, but it's like an extraordinarily upstream solution. Yeah. You know? Well, unfortunately a lot of the like best solutions aren't the sexy solutions, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, this is like going to be, sorry, I'm going to nerd out about the West wing for a second, but like, sure. It reminds me of the last season of the West wing when the character, when CJ is like, gets offered the job from the billionaire He's like, what can you do with $10 billion yeah. to fix the world? And she's like, go to Africa and build roads. You know, mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. you don't think like a road building project is going to get anyone exciting, but you know what? That's what is needed. To- yeah. That is what is going to save the world. Like yeah, exactly. you're talking about access because in the doing of that, and I think that, that's why I say that this is an upstream problem. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, there's a book and I believe it's called upstream and it's sort of based on the anecdote of two guys fishing in a river and they see somebody else up the river, toss a kid mm-hmm. into the river. So they go and they get the kid out. And as they're getting the first kid out, the dude up the river tosses another kid in. So they get in they have the second kid and so on and so on and so on until finally one of the guys who's rescuing the kids gets out of the river. The second guy goes, you know, what, like, where the hell are you going? And the guy, the first guy who got out says, I'm going to go through throw that the guy who's throwing the kids into the river into the river so it's like it's because you can sit there all day and pull the kids out of the river but unless you tackle the actual inciting issue right you're just going to be doing this sisyphean task of handling it as as it as it like floats by you it's what they call a -a whack-a-mole problem yeah 100 so yeah and so the thing with like you know again going back to the west wing the thing with the roads in africa is that what you are then doing is providing access to technology food medicine yeah Yeah. which creates all of these other sexy solutions Mm -hmm. right but you have to get down to the initial unsexy solution first. Right. Yeah. Lead abatement's just not a sexy solution, Um, but it's actually a solution that could have incredible economic rewards. Mm -hmm. According to Drum's article, he talked to a bunch of people that, uh, including Rick Nevin, because he was doing the whole thing about what it would cost to get lead paint out of homes. Mm -hmm. So he talked to a whole bunch of people about like what it would actually cost 
to do a massive national lead abatement program. And this is removing lead paint from homes and removing lead from soil, which is Mm -hmm. um, the leaded gasoline got the lead into the soil. So a nationwide lead abatement program to clean up lead painted windows, because apparently that's actually like the opening and the closing of lead painted windows is where you get a lot of the like shedding the particulate yeah. Mm-hmm. Cleaning up lead painted windows and lead sacked soil, which those two are the two remaining biggest causes of atmospheric lead in the US, that program would cost roughly $20 billion a year for two decades. Mm-hmm. And that's like a hefty price tag. Like, yeah. no doubt, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like, it is not an insignificant amount of money. Mm-hmm. But if we do this, it could bring up to $30 billion a year in cognitive benefits, meaning kids with higher resulting IQs. Mm-hmm. And that would result in higher lifetime earnings and crime would continue to decrease. I don't think it's Nevins. I think it's somebody else, but somebody in the original Mother Jones article states that a 10% drop, which is not huge, but a 10% drop in crime could produce benefits as high as $150 billion a year. So if you do these things and you spend $20 billion a year every year for two decades, you would get almost $200 billion a year back on that investment. Right. Well, and the thing is, $20 billion sounds like a lot of money, but it's actually, when you're talking like $20 billion per year of national GDP, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. Well, and I'm also just going to remind everybody here that the industrial prison complex is costing us $20 billion a year just to continue growing the industrial prison complex. Yeah, exactly. So boom, there you go. There's your money right there. Problem, crime solved. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm going to finish up with this. Drum ends his article with the following quote. So this is the choice before us. We can either attack crime at its root by getting rid of the remaining lead in our environment, or we can continue our current policy of waiting 20 years and then locking up all the lead poisoned kids who have turned into criminals. If you gave me the choice right now of spending 20 billion more on getting rid of lead, I'd take the deal in a heartbeat. Cleaning up the rest of the lead that remains in our environment could turn out to be the cheapest, most effective crime prevention tool we have, and we could start doing it tomorrow. Yeah. And that is the story of the lead crime theory. Yeah. I mean, I think if I'm going to put this on the weirdest thing, believability scale, and oh, yeah, solid 10 to me. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And like you said, it's not the only factor there. You know, I'm sure economics plays a factor drug abuse addiction issues mental health you know these things are all factors but there is one data set that just correlates to all of this and it is and that's the like the last one people think of but when you think about it when you think about what we know about lead Mm -hmm. you know because they've been talking about this with flint you know that that unfortunately that's a city that's in for like a really rough time in the coming decades because you have a generation of kids who've been exposed to lead well and what i saw in some stuff and i'm it i didn't see it in an article so i'm not going to state the source but what i did see was that actually the kids in flint are at less risk of lead exposure than the kids in detroit Mm, interesting Mm -hmm. i hadn't heard that there is a lot of really incredible data because you know everybody wants to be like oh inner city kids and you know they want to make it like a race issue and all that stuff but again when you look at gentrification and you look at the way that things like highways were used Mm -hmm. to divide the, were used to divide cities 
essentially by race. Mm -hmm. And you see that there were a lot of like black and brown kids that grew up right next to big highways where a shit ton of lead was being pumped into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, maybe the like single mom theory of like, oh, it's because these did these kids like, you know, didn't have didn't have a father figure and stuff. And no, it's because they were just like basically sucking on tailpipes there during their form. Yeah, they're being poisoned. Yeah, they're being poisoned. Yeah. I mean, it is, like you said, it's not a sexy answer, but it's a pretty like clear answer, you know? What's interesting, and like nobody knows what's going on right now. I've been reading and hearing a lot about, but we're in the middle of a crime wave now. Mm-hmm. Um, or I should say a spike in crime. People use the term crime wave pretty fucking loosely. Yeah. Um, but like crime has been going up the last, I think actually even pre-2020, it started to go back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was a huge spike last year. And I think even going into this year, it's still up. But it's like, yeah, we're also like, we're in a crisis year or we were in a crisis year last year. Like there are a yeah. lot of factors that can account for that because I have seen pundits try to basically use the current crime epidemic or whatever you want to say as a like Mm -hmm. as a way to discount the lead theory Mm -hmm. but i'm like i don't i don't see how like it's apples and oranges because yeah but we also just lived through like an incredibly divisive presidency and you know worldwide pandemic like those are also going to cause probably short-term spikes you know yeah we won't know for a decade if this is going to be a continual rise in crime or if this is just a spike so it's just i mean i guess the thing is is like there's just no conclusions to be drawn about what's going on right now yet yeah precisely and at that point you know i I mean we don't even know at this point what the effects of covid are like so who knows (laughs) yeah no it's it's a big mystery and we'll buckle up we're gonna find out but yeah there's this lead hypothesis just it is super convincing to me that it it is if not the only factor maybe the main factor that's what i'm saying like to me the evidence is compelling and let's not like like, let's just agree not to credit rudy giuliani for the drop in crime in new york because like you said it was stopping before he got in anyway yeah it was starting to drop and then again you know like you've got plenty of other cities across the country that were also experiencing drops in crime and like i said they didn't have giuliani around he wasn't he wasn't affecting like the drop and crime in like Gary, Indiana, you know? Right, right. But I mean, I think that that's the thing too, is it like, again, we want to talk about like, it's hilarious to me that we want to talk about a rise in crime, but we don't want to talk about the rise in mass shootings. Yeah. Because again, like, well, I mean, for some people, like, God bless gun control is like sexy as fuck to me. But like the idea of being like, okay, sorry, guys, we've got to put like strict regulations on guns. We've got to really put our nose to the grindstone and figure out how to fix this so that we can get guns out of hands. People are like, oh, mm, right. unrelated. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. Well, it's like, I mean, it's like, I mean, we're, we're, this is, uh, we're off subject now, but that's okay. I was talking to my dad last night. We were talking about voter ID laws and, uh, you know, the people who are demanding, we need IDs to vote. Yes. You need to be able to show an ID before you can vote are the same Mm -hmm. people that the moment you say, well, you should show an ID before you buy a gun. They're going to be like unconstitutional freedom. Right. And they're right. They're also the same people that are like, I have to show some type of a card that says whether or not I've gotten a vaccine. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. For that one, I'm like, have you never been out of the country? I have yeah. been like, I I have. Well, been they probably in, haven't. <laughs> they probably haven't. But I've been incredibly blessed to have been able to travel to some pretty awesome places in the world. And I had to show my card that said that I'd gotten a yellow fever shot. Mm-hmm. I had to show that I'd gotten like, think the malaria shot. Like, it, it guys, yeah, it's not a thing. 
Like, but I know are, you want to make these, it a thing, but it's not a thing. I mean, these are the, <laughs> get, the people, get the fucking so. vaccine. God yeah. damn it. Um, <laughs> well, super awesome. fascinating. Super interesting. Yay. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I was have really struggling to find something that I could like really dig into. And I saw this was all based on a Reddit thread that I saw. I'm trying to remember. I should have written down what it was, but it was something like, like, what's a piece of knowledge you have that's like almost unbelievably true or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somebody was like the leaded gasoline caused like, I think it was like leaded, leaded gasoline caused like the golden age of serial killers. And I was like, wait, what? And then just <laughs> fell into yeah. this rabbit hole. I'm- I mean, like you said, I think tying it too directly to serial killers is like, there's a lot of other I think it's reductive. It's reductive. And like, I think, I personally think a big part of the drop in serial killers over the last couple of decades really is just DNA testing and DNA forensics. Because what happens is a lot of people who, who would become serial killers get caught before they can become a serial killer. You know. Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, one of the Reddit threads that I popped into that was specifically about lead crime theory, somebody was like, it's CCTV, like cameras are everywhere. And I mm-hmm. think, I think like that has a little bit like, I mean, you know, it's just I'm harder the- to get away with a murder than it was 30 years ago. Yeah, I think it's harder to get away with, with murder. I think there's also things, one of the things that I did see was that like, a lot of factors that provided victims for serial killers have been removed. Mm -hmm. So that's like hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. Like when hitchhiking went away, when people were like, Oh, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Then, Like I'm not trying to make light of it, but then serial killers were like, "Fuck, where do I get? Yeah. Well, I'm like, where do I do this? We've talked about, you know, that eighties era where your parents just kind of turned you loose and were like, you know, hope you come back tonight. Yeah. That's kind of over. You know, so. that's kind of over. Yeah. And there are things like there is a greater awareness with like sex workers and stuff like that. Like people who are in that industry are learning the things to not do. And, 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 that, that, and- yeah. And that is by no means me saying that like violence within that community does not happen because we know that that's of 100%. Yeah. But it's, it is not as easy for a sex worker to just for a sex worker or several sex workers to just disappear and for nobody to fucking notice. Right. Well, and like everyone's got a social media presence now. So it's like people don't just fall off the map the way they used to. I Precisely. mean, there's just, there's a lot of factors there. And so yeah. I think, yeah, tying, tying the lead hypothesis to serial killer specifically right. is maybe getting too grand but like right but when you look at crime in a broad way right including serial killers to a degree i i just think the evidence is overwhelming right oh the other thing i saw and i think specifically richard ramirez and golden state killer were brought up in this is that people lock their doors now yeah like people this boggles my fucking mind people used to go to sleep with their front door unlocked oh i grew up and granted i grew up in los alamos which is a low crime small town right right. Um, we never locked our door when i was a kid but probably in the last couple decades i know my parents always locked their door now it just you know it wasn't a habit and then it became a habit you know no my parents had and i mean that could have been you know because my parents are immigrants. And so maybe they were coming from a place that maybe wasn't as idyllic as, as idyllic in quotes as the United States, but my parents had the like house shutdown routine, mm-hmm. you know, every door was checked, lights were turned on, mm-hmm. you know, windows were checked, all of that stuff. 
I mean, you, you guys were in Albuquerque too, which is, you know, certainly higher crime than Los Alamos. But right. I know people who grew up in Albuquerque who've talked about how they didn't lock their doors when they were kids. So the other, I mean, I saw the other day that I had not double locked. I hadn't locked both of the locks on one door before I'd gone to bed. And I was like, I, I can't even believe I'm alive right now. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like they still would have had to have gotten through got the drilled into you. Yeah. <laughs> But I was like, my God, I might as well just put a sign on me that says, please come murder me. Um, (laughs) That was super fascinating. Yay. Awesome. All right. Well, mine, I have a little bit, not a cold open so much as as a question for you. Ooh, okay. Just take a guess. In what country do you think the largest ever man-made explosion happened outside of a nuclear bomb? Outside of a nuclear bomb? Yeah. So aside from a nuclear detonation... What country do you think hosted, if you want to use that word, the largest man-made explosion in history? Um, fuck, I, Jesus, I have no idea. I have no idea. The answer is Canada. Canada? Yeah. I'm going to tell the story today of the Halifax explosion of 1917. Fantastic. Okay. So just to start off, just a little bit of background on the city of Halifax. I'm sure everyone has heard of it. It is the capital city of Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is, of course, one of Canada's three maritime provinces. So I think that's Newfoundland and Labrador, I think New Brunswick, and then uh, Nova Scotia. So it's kind of an island like off the coast of Okay. Sort of. You know, and that's where the that's where the locks comes from, right? I believe so. Yay! Okay, I feel like um, Nova Scotia locks as I see that on menus. That, that seems to be like a thing, or like Nova Scotia okay. salmon, or whatever. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so so Halifax is the capital city of Nova Scotia. It was initially settled by the Micmac tribe of Native Americans. The first Europeans to settle Halifax were the French. Uh, okay. They arrived in 1604. So this is like French Canada, the, the Acadians, you know. Okay. And then along with some Catholic Mi'kmaq converts, the French established the first permanent European colony in Canada in Nova Scotia. It quickly became a very important military port. Uh, so there were a number of like major clashes throughout the region, throughout history is like the English, the Dutch, the French... Like, everyone's just, like, fighting for... Land that isn't theirs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, of course, who suffers the most? It's the Mm Micmacs. And then it ended up becoming, like, a major, major port. It became kind of the world leader in the construction of wooden sailing ships, like, throughout the 17 and 1800s. And kind of after the, the American Revolution, Canada was still a British possession. So they turned Halifax into their major, like, naval base. Uh... Uh, in North America. Okay. Halifax Harbor. It's also called, uh, I wrote it down, but I'm forgetting. It's called something else, something basin, Bedford basin, I think. Okay. Um, it's like a big deep Harbor, but the way to get into it is through this very narrow channel called the narrows, the Harbor, Halifax Harbor. It's flanked on two sides on the Western side by the city of Halifax and on the Eastern side by the city of Dartmouth. So basically where the Harbor is, it's like the bottom of Nova Scotia Island and to go into it, you're sailing North and you have Halifax on one side, Dartmouth on the other. Okay. Because of its strategic importance, both Halifax and Dartmouth thrived. 
during all of these various wars. So like I said, during the American mm-hmm. Revolution and kind of after the American Revolution, it became one of the British Royal Navy's most important bases in North America. It was the center of wartime trade. It was also the home base for privateers during the American Revolution and the War of 1812 and all the Napoleonic Wars that were happening around that time. Oh, okay. An intercolonial railway was built in 1880 and it its deep water terminal in Halifax led to even more development because it really increased the steamship trade into Halifax. So this led to major development of both Halifax and Dartmouth. And then the Canadian government took over the port in the early 20th century. It became the command center for the Royal Canadian Navy, which I didn't know Canada had a Navy. Sorry, Canadians. I just, I always like assume, like I'm just a typical American who just like thinks of Canada, I think as like another state. And I'm like, no, they're like a whole country. They're a whole. (laughs) Yeah. um, So, you know, but, you know, who knew? They have a Navy. So good for you, Canada. Good job, Canada. So around the time of the explosion, like I said, it was 1917, Halifax, the population of Halifax and Dartmouth was around 60 to 65,000 people. The cities had entered kind of a downturn around 1905, but then the start of World War I led to like this economic renewal. You know, they were part of the Allied forces, I think. But their main role, like the Canadian Navy's main role, was to protect and maintain the Atlantic trade routes during the war. And then the British Navy resumed using Halifax as its primary North American base. And so by 1917, there was this growing, like, naval fleet in Halifax Harbor. Now, it was very dangerous because of German U-boat attacks. So, Oh, Okay. There really was just this one way in because they would put these submar- anti-submarine nets basically blocking their way into the harbor. Um, and you could just go through this one channel, which was called the Narrows, to get into the harbor. Because the Allied fleets were adopting like a convoy system to move both goods and soldiers across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. They would all basically gather at the northwestern end of the harbor, which was protected by these two sets of anti-submarine nets. They would depart under the protection of British cruisers and destroyers. And there was like a big army garrison, basically with like gun turrets, gun emplacements all around the harbor in case someone tried to attack um okay so those major major strategic importance during world war one okay setting up the halifax explosion jesus okay so it resulted from a collision of two ships so the first ship was the norwegian ship ss imo Mm -hmm. it arrived in halifax on december 3rd 1917 for inspection oh one thing i should mention is that all neutral ships during this time period who are sailing into north america or from north america into europe Uh had to check in to halifax harbor for inspection so basically everyone's going to halifax when i say neutral ships i'm talking about like from neutral nations who are not right belligerence in the war so this norwegian ship ss imo uh norway i believe was technically neutral so they had to go to halifax on december 3rd 1917 for inspection the ship was captained by a guy named hakan from and they were taking relief supplies from new york to belgium uh, so i think like medical supplies and, and food uh-huh. and things like that it was given clearance to leave on december 5th but the departure was delayed because they were waiting for a coal load to get them across the Atlantic. And it didn't arrive until later that afternoon. By the time they got the coal loaded, the city had already put up the anti-submarine nets and no ships could come in or out of the harbor. So they had to wait overnight. Mm. 
Meanwhile, on that same day, December 5th, a French cargo ship, the SS Montblanc, arrived from New York, also heading to Europe. But they didn't get there. They were also delayed. And so they actually arrived after the nets had gone up. So you have the SS Imo stuck inside the harbor and the mm-hmm. SS Montblanc stuck outside the harbor. And they just have to wait through the night. Uh, um, so they're both in a big Okay. is basically. <laughs> uh, okay. So you can kind of imagine where this is leading. So the SS Montblanc, it was under the command of a captain named Ami Le Medec. Now, where is the SS Ima was like food, medical supplies, you know, general relief supplies. The SS Montblanc was filled with TNT and pitric acid, which are both major explosives. And then we're also carrying uh, highly flammable benzyl and gun cotton on the deck, like last in barrels on the deck. <sighs> So it's just a big floating bomb is what this ship was. Um, It was supposed to join a convoy that was gathering in the harbor and would then depart for Europe. But since they arrived late, they were kind of stuck outside. Now, before the start of the war, any ship like the Mont Blanc that's carrying dangerous or explosive cargo was not allowed into the harbor. But because of the risk of German U-boat attacks, that meant that they had kind of eased up on all of these regulations Mm. um so like i said to get into the harbor into the bay you had to go through this very narrow channel called the narrows entering ships were expected to keep close to the side of the channel on their starboard which is the right and then pass vehicles port to port which means keep them on their left so it's just like driving down a street we're on the right side of the road cars on the left side you got to keep it that way so you don't have a collision Uh, right well (laughs) i'm already i already have agita about this okay and also because of the narrowness of the strait ships were commanded to go no more than five knots inside of the harbor okay uh, which is about five miles an hour Okay. Um, well, at 7.40 a.m. on December 6th, the IMO was granted clearance to leave the harbor. A pilot named William Hayes was in charge of getting the ship out of the Narrows. Now, I could be wrong about this, but the way there's two pilots I'm going to mention. There's William Hayes and then another guy, Francis Mackey. The way I think the pilots worked is, you know, the ships have a captain, but the pilots actually worked for the harbor itself. And they would get on the boat mm. and sort of steer it in or out of the harbor and then get back off. You know, so they weren't necessarily okay. part of the ship's crew. Okay. I know that that's the way it works some places. That's the way I think it worked here, but I'm not 100% sure. But doesn't okay. matter. This pilot, William Hayes, he was in charge of getting the ship out of the Narrows. So they entered the Narrows going well above the five knot speed limit. Mm. Um, they, were, they were trying to make up time because they had lost a day, essentially, since they got yeah. stuck in the harbor. As it was passing through the Narrows, it encountered an American tramp steamer called the SS Clara, which was unfortunately going by on the wrong side of the harbor. So they're going down Come on, guys. the starboard <laughs> side, and then here it comes straight at them on the starboard side, this tramp steamer. So they kind of like pull up beside each other. They have the two ship pilots have a conversation, and they agree to pass starboard to starboard and instead of port to port. So (sighs) they're letting the Clara pass on their right side rather than their left, which of course puts them in the left wing. Mm. As they're passing the Clara, another boat is coming. It's a tugboat called the Stella Maris. And it's basically taking up like the middle of the channel. So What the fuck? Did nobody get the memo about how this shit was supposed to work? It sure sounds like it. It sure sounds like everyone's fucking up here. So this made the IMO have to like go even further to the wrong side of the channel. Mm. 
to try mm-hmm. to get around this tugboat. Meanwhile, the, a pilot named Francis Mackey had boarded the Mont Blanc. He, he had boarded the night before and he asked them, hey, do you have any like special protections because you're carrying this like super explosive, dangerous stuff? And the answer was like, no, not really. <laughs> so he was like, cool. cool. All right, okay. well, roll of the dice, I guess, you know? Yeah, hope for the best. So he piloted the Mont Blanc into the Nows at around 7.30. So at a, essentially the same time, you have the IMO going, from the harbor out to sea through the narrows at 740 and you have the Mont Blanc entering the narrows at 730. So they're now on a collision course. Mm-hmm. So Mackie first spotted the IMO when she was about three quarters of a mile away, realized that the ship was on the wrong side of the channel. So he blasted the Mont Blanc signal whistle to let the IMO know that he had the right of way, but he got two blasts back. Which And what that means is that the IMO is telling him, yeah, we're not going to yield our position. What I think happened, this wasn't super clear to me, is that the tugboat was still in the way. So they're like, yeah, we can't move over. Like, we're stuck. So deal with it. Mackie ordered the Mont Blanc to halt its engines and try to angle slightly to starboard, which even put it like closer to the wall on the Dartmouth side of the channel. Mm -hmm. They gave another whistle blast at this point, hoping at this point the IMO would be like, okay, yeah, we'll get out of your way. But again, they got the two blasts back saying, nope, we're not moving. So now you've got two ships, just, you know, momentum, just carrying them straight in. Playing chicken with each other. Essentially playing chicken. Now, on the shore and on all the other ships that are kind of in the harbor, you know, people are hearing these blasts and people who are in the know, they're like, oh, these ships are super about to crash into each other. So what do people do? They line the decks of their ships. They get on because they're like, we want to watch the crash. So people are standing along the harbor on the decks of ships watching this slow motion disaster unfolding. Oh, my God. Yeah. At this point, both ships have cut their engines, but they're in the water. So they're just like momentum, nothing stopping them. And Mackie, he knew because of his explosive cargo, he couldn't ground his ship. Like normally what you would try to do is just beach the ship, just get it out of the way. And then you worry about it later. Well, you can't do that when you have a bunch of explosives. (laughs) So he's, he's stuck. And I think the IMO had no idea what the Mont Blanc was carrying. So they're just like, I don't know, fucker, just get out of our way, you know, because they could have grounded themselves, but they didn't. Right. So he did this last ditch, Mackie did this last ditch effort where he tried to go hard port. So they're both on the starboard side. He basically tries to take a hard left turn to go around the ship. Again, now he's moving into the wrong lane, Mm -hmm. but it's too late. They're going too fast. They're too close. So he crosses the bow of the IMO. At this point, they're basically parallel to each other, port to port. Mm -hmm. Um, And the captain of the IMO gives three signal blasts which indicates that he was reversing that ship's engine. Well, the problem is the IMO was very light. Like its cargo was very light. So it's kind of floating on top of the water. So when he reduced the engine or reversed the engine, it just swung the prow of the ship into the Mont Blanc. Oh my God. Yeah. So at 8.45 a.m., the head of the IMO slams into the Mont Blanc. The prow pushed into the number one hold of the Mont Blanc's starboard side. It was not severe damage, but it did cause the barrels of benzol that were strapped to the deck to fall over and break. Mm. Uh, So the deck is suddenly flooded with this extremely flammable material, which is now also flowing down into the hold, which is where all the pitric acid and TNT is. Um, As the IMO is now trying to reverse, pulling the ships apart, the friction caused sparks. 
in the hold, which of course <sighs> ignited the vapors coming up off of the benzol. Now the captain of the Mont Blanc, he knew it was like, oh shit, we got a fire on this floating bomb. He immediately ordered his crew to abandon ship. So they get on lifeboats and just row the fuck away. And yeah. as they're rowing away, they see people just lined up watching this. So they're frantically shouting, like, get back, get back. The ship's going to fucking blow. Get back. They're mm -hmm. waving their arms. And all the people are just watching because they can't hear. So I, I'm sure they're just like, hi, you know, like waving. Hi. Out. <laughs> Job. Welcome oh. to Halifax. You know. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Um, Listeners, you can't see, but I'm essentially like eating my fist during yeah. this entire story. It's just yeah. you look. I'm, I'm white. I'm white knuckling through this story. I mean, you look very stressed out. <laughs> so the lifeboats from the Mont Blanc, they're they're heading to the Dartmouth side of the of this channel, while the abandoned ship, the Mont Blanc, drifts over to the Halifax side and essentially beaches itself at Pier Six near Richmond Street in Halifax. Still in the narrows, they're not in the big channel or okay. in the big harbor. Mm -hmm. Well, this tugboat that fucked everything up and was in the way. They see what happens and they see the fire. So they're like, we're going to help. So they turn around. Sorry. I thought that they were just going to be like, burr, burr, and like Bye, off they go. Good luck. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. Unfortunately, may they rest in peace. They did not do that. Oh, fudge. So they turn around because they're like, we're going to put the fire. They have a fire hose. And then they realize, oh, this fire is burning way out of control. We, we can't put this out with the fire hose. But. As they're approaching the ship, a whaling ship called the HMS High Flyer and a steamship called the Niobe also see what's happening. They try to join in to help as well. They get there and they and they say, I don't think, I think they were afraid, well, the ship's going to burn and it's going to catch the pier on fire. So let's pull it away from the pier to keep the pier from igniting, not knowing what's in the cargo hold. Yeah. So they're standing around trying to figure out how to attach basically a tow rope to it. And they're kind of in the middle of this discussion of how to attach a tow rope up alongside the Mont Blanc when the ship exploded. Oh, God. Okay, so here's the explosion. So at 9.04 a.m., the fire detonated the TNT and the pitcher acid. <sighs> so the Mont Blanc was completely blown apart. The blast wave shot out of it uh, at more than 3,000 feet per second. What? Yeah. The temperature at the center of the explosion, they think, was about 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Fudge. So now all these people who are lined up watching it have to deal with chunks of burning ship oh my raining God. down on them. The Mont Blanc's forward nine millimeter gun landed about three and a half miles north of the explosion in Dartmouth. Its barrel was completely melted. What? Meanwhile, its anchor, which weighed about half a ton, landed two miles south of the explosion. What? Yeah. The smoke cloud rose to almost 12,000 feet into the atmosphere. The blast wave traveled through the earth at about 23 times the speed of sound and was felt as far away as Prince Edward Island, which is about 110 miles away. Um, now about 400 acres of both Halifax and Dartmouth were just destroyed. Like just, you know, 400 acres just leveled. 
yeah. by this blast. The blast was so intense that it actually pushed so much water out that it exposed the bottom of the of the narrows of the channel. Oh wow. And of course, this created a 60-foot tsunami that seconds later slammed into Halifax. Oh my god. Of the those three ships trying to attach the tow line, you had the Stella Maris tugboat, you had the whaling ship and you had the steamship. One man survived on the whaling ship. I could not find how many people were on the crew originally, but only one of mm. them survived. There were 26 people on the tugboat. Four of them survived. And I think nobody survived on the steamship. Um, the Mont Blanc's crew, almost all of them survived because they got off onto the lifeboat. So only Onto one- the lifeboats, right. Okay. Right. So only one of them died. In the cities of Halifax and Dartmouth, 1,600 people died instantly. Another 9,000 were injured, 300 of them later dying of their injuries. Every building in a 1.6 mile radius was destroyed. So about 12,000 buildings total. Hundreds, this this really, this one like made me go, like I didn't like this one. Mm. Hundreds of people who had been watching the fire from inside their homes were immediately blinded when the blast shattered the windows. Oh. Yeah. That's rough. It also knocked over stoves and lamps throughout the city, which caused more fires. So entire city blocks just burned down, particularly in Halifax's north end. Unfortunately, a lot of the residents were just trapped in their houses. Oh, no. A guy named Billy Wells, who was a firefighter, he was nearby. He was thrown away from the blast with such force that it actually ripped the clothes from his body. What? Yeah. And this is what he said. Here's his quote. He said, the site was awful with people hanging out of windows dead some with their heads missing and some thrown onto the overhead telegraph wires. Oh yeah. There were also, I just also, I just want to note that Scotty is smiling during all of this, (laughs) just again, because you all can't see him, but I can, I'm going to out him. And he is 100% smiling while he just said that. (laughs) I mean, I'm enjoying your reactions as much as anything. (laughs) Oh, whatever. Lead paint in in me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there were also a lot of like large stone and brick factory buildings near this pier six. Um, they just collapsed immediately, killed most of the workers inside. Uh, the railway yards were destroyed with about 55 railway workers killed and 500 rail cars destroyed. Mm -hmm. Most of the deaths and injuries happened on the Halifax side. Because Dartmouth was much less densely populated, but there was still mm-hmm. it was still heavily damaged. At least a hundred people over there were killed. This is really sad. There were all these Micmac enclaves that were kind of nestled in the coves around mm-hmm. the harbor. One in particular was called Tufts Cove. It was a very small Micmac community that had been very controversial because white landowners had been trying to essentially evict them from this land. Mm-hmm. Um, this this community was just decimated. Uh, by the blast it's not known how many people died from tufts cove but they think between 9 and 16 people the survivors were moved into racially segregated buildings uh, under generally poor conditions and then were later just kind of like moved to various parts around nova scotia okay let's talk about patrick vincent coleman who was kind of one of the heroes of the halifax explosion so he was operating a rail yard or he was working at the operating rail yard i should say about 750 feet from pier six as the fire on the ship started another sailor came by and i'm not sure who this sailor was or how he knew but he was basically like you need to get the fuck away from here because that's loaded with explosives and it's about to explode 
So Coleman, the sailor, and a co-worker were preparing to flee, but then Coleman remembered, wait, there's an incoming passenger train coming in from New Brunswick. <gasps> and it's like minutes away. Oh. So while his co-worker fled and this other sailor fled, Coleman went back to his post and started sending out these urgent telegraphs, basically telling them to stop the train. So several variations of the message have been reported. Here's one from the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic, where he said, hold up the train. Ammunition, ship fire, and harbor making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. Come on. Yeah. So because of his message, this got out and then other stations heard the message. So they started relaying the message. So all trains coming into Halifax stopped dead, particularly this passenger train number 10, which was the one coming in from New Brunswick, which was literally minutes away. Coleman's actions probably saved the lives of at least 300 passengers on that train. Oh, my God. Unfortunately, he did not survive the blast. Mm. He was inducted into the Canadian Railway Hall of Fame in 2004. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Halifax to Dartmouth Ferry was named Uh after him in 2018. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. So let's talk about the rescue efforts. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So at first, the first people trying to uh, rescue people were just surviving neighbors and citizens who were just, who were part of the blast and started trying to pull other people Mm. out of the debris. And then local surviving policemen and firefighters, as well as like military personnel around the area started coming to join in. The military people are interesting because at first people thought the explosion was caused by a German plane having dropped a bomb. So, so the soldiers, the military garrison essentially went to their guns. Remember, like I said, there were these gun emplacements around and were like pointing their guns at the sky for about an hour waiting for more German bombers. Oh God. Uh, But once it became clear within about an hour that no, this was just a tragic, tragic accident, they left their posts and went to join into the rescue operations. The flood of victims overwhelmed the city's hospitals. Um, (sighs) They ended up, there was a new military hospital at a, a, place called camp hill they ended up Mm -hmm. admitting about 1400 victims by the end of that day fire and rescue companies from all across nova scotia and new brunswick had arrived to assist in the rescue royal navy cruisers and even a coast guard cutter that had been anchored in point their crews joined into the rescue efforts then out at sea there were two u.s ships that were kind of just cruising past halifax one was the uss tacoma and which was a military ship i think a naval ship and then the other was an armed merchant cruiser named the uss von steuben the Tacoma at first stayed back because again they were thinking it was a bomb but when they heard what happened they changed course and went into Halifax and assisted into the rescue the Van Steuben arrived about a half hour later uh, so people are just coming in from all corners to try and help yeah like I said there were 55 rail workers killed their surviving rail workers joined the rescue effort mostly focused on pulling their injured and killed colleagues out of the wreckage ah okay um and then the train that was warned by Coleman, it was actually was close enough that it was hit by the blast, but it was far enough away that there were really no serious damage or injuries. So after the blast happened, they started creeping forward at a slow speed to get as close as they could. They basically mm-hmm. moved into the city until the wreckage was blocking the, the rails. Tracks. Uh-huh. The tracks. And the passengers and crew of the train got into the train's emergency equipment, which included shovels, medical supplies, and they disembarked from the plane and all, or from the plane, from the train, and also joined in the rescue. Wow. The Halifax Relief Commission was formed at around noon that day. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So within hours. 
It was put in charge of. <laughs> I'm just trying. Sorry, yeah. I'm just trying to think of that meeting that they were like, are like, is ever is everybody fucking good with us are creating all, this fucking commission? Are we all on board? Any Bob, dissenting okay, votes? can we just do this now, <laughs> yeah. please? Thank you. Okay, go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they were put in charge of organizing medical relief, supplying transportation, food and shelter, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. covering medical and funeral costs for the victims. The commission oh. lasted until 1976. What? Yeah, because it was involved with reconstruction and relief efforts over basically 50 years. Wow. So the belief that it was a German attack remained for quite some time. This was sort of propagated by news coverage from the Halifax Herald, which was their local Mm -hmm. paper. Mm -hmm. Um, Went so far as to say that like German soldiers were seen making fun of the victims of the Halifax explosion. It just reminds me of like the post 9-11, you know, Muslims were seen dancing in the streets, you know, kind of propaganda. Seems like kind of the same thing. The helmsman of this IMO, which was the Norwegian ship, Mm -hmm. was seriously injured. And so while he was uh, being treated for his injuries, it was reported that he was, quote, behaving suspiciously because apparently people did not know the difference between a Norwegian and a German. So they found a letter that I think was like a letter home to his family. They found a letter in his possession. They were like, oh, my God, it's written in German. He's a German Mm -hmm. spy. And so he was arrested for being a spy until it was proved, in fact, that his letter was not written in German. It was written in Norwegian. (laughs) His native tongue. Yeah. Oh, my God. There was a judicial inquiry called. uh, It was called the REC Commissioner's Inquiry. It investigated the cause of the explosion. And a year later, in 1918, the explosion almost put all of the blame on the captain of the Mont Blanc, this Ami Lemetic, as well as the ship's pilot, Francis Mackey. They also blamed, the, and I forgot to write the guy's name down, but it was a Royal Canadian officer, like an engineer, I think, who was in mm-hmm. charge of the gates and the submarine nets. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems very clear, and I've read this several places, that this decision to blame the Mont Blanc was because of general anti-French bias in the region. Think about Nova Scotia and this region of Canada is, like I said, it had changed hands over time. French possession, British possession. Nova Scotia means New Scotland. So a lot of the the people, native Nova Scotians, are Scottish descent um, and had just regional prejudice against like Acadians and French people in other provinces. So it seems like pretty political that they were blaming this French captain, saying it was all his fault, because really he wasn't the one speeding. He wasn't the one on the wrong side of the channel. Right. You know, this was the tugboat and this was the tramp steamer that were coming in the wrong side that forced the IMO Mm -hmm. onto the wrong side. The IMO didn't yield when it was supposed to. It just seems pretty clear to me that the Mont Blanc was scapegoated for what happened. Yeah. Most people did expect the the crew of the IMO and the captain of the IMO to be blamed. But the owner of that ship retained a street fighting lawyer, quote unquote, street fighting lawyer Uh named Charles Burchell to argue its case. And basically, I think just he just went in and like full of bluster and pounding his fists on the table and made it right uh you know basically to be like it was the french people's fault so right so Mackey and lemetic were both charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence mm. but then the nova scotia supreme court looked into it and they said there's no evidence to support the charges and so the charges were dropped wait were these dudes still alive yeah they had survived okay well because well, they had been on the uh lifeboat that uh oh, right, abandoned right, ship. right 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 
Yeah. And so, like I said, the Halifax explosion is to this day the largest non-nuclear man-made explosion in human history. It, it was the power was a about three kilotons, which made it about 20% the power of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Is it bigger than the than the blast that happened in Beirut? I think so. That one is way up there. I and when that okay. happened, they were I remember seeing it. They were comparing it to the Halifax explosion. Halifax, okay. I where everywhere I looked is still saying the Halifax explosion is the largest, but I did see like they're kind of neck and neck. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, and that is the story of the Halifax explosion. Dang. Yeah. So fairly well, short terrifying. one for me this week. But, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. I could have gone more into the investigation and stuff, but it just got into a lot of back and forth and kind of wasn't yeah. that interesting because like really what you need to know about the investigation is that it was sort of bullshit. And right. Scapegoated the French, which mm. I understand the appeal of doing that, but let's, <laughs> let's not scapegoat the French. Like... <laughs> Unnecessarily, unnecessarily you know i mean let's not do it unnecessarily yeah i mean you know blame them whenever whenever it's 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 correct to do so but unnecessarily right like if just... you don't like their you know soft cheese that's fine you know get mad at them for that but let's not i'm sorry them. if you don't like their soft cheese we're gonna have a problem you and me <laughs> listeners you and amelia are gonna have a problem i am a fan soft of uh soft cheese amazing yes yeah yeah, the yeah. best breed I've ever had when we went to France for uh, the Cannes Film Festival, humble brag, the Cannes Ooh. Film Festival years uh-huh. ago. We we went and got just from like their local version no. of Kroger's. We got yeah. some yep. brie, and it was like life changing. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, it's sometimes I think about all of the foods that I would not be able to eat if I were to get pregnant. And like that in and of itself is good enough birth control and soft cheese is, is, uh, is high up on that list. You're not supposed to eat soft cheese when you're pregnant. Mm, I I was going to say something about like pasteurized milk or some bullshit, but I don't actually Hmm. know why. I don't know. I mean, I know sushi is like the, the risk of um, mercury. Mercury and possible parasites, maybe I think as well. Uh, I don't know. Blah 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 blah. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Don't eat raw stuff when you're pregnant. Maybe. Yeah, I guess whatever. But like, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't, that just seems like more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm. I'm a fan of French cheese. Yeah. Anybody who has been pregnant and is listening to this and did all of those things, good on you. You are a stronger person with a uterus than I am. <laughs> yeah. Cause that yeah. just doesn't, I'm unwilling. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Oh, great. That was a great story. Well done. Yeah. It, great. And that it's interesting. Terrible. Yes. Awful. <laughs> yes. 100%. I've, uh, I've read this story several times. And the part that always gets to me is the exploding windows that just, just something about that. It's just just so visceral all of the what was it like the three thousand victims or whatever you said the three thousand some odd people that died was that right it was 1600 yes okay was it like was it like the blast yeah it was either let me look vamping 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 um i think it was but we're like the did those people die from from like the like the force of the blast or like debris falling on them or like what the fuck i think it was force of the blast debris falling so 1600 everything people died instantly another okay. 300 died later of their injuries right and I, th- I think it was everything. I think it was force of blast. I think it was, like I said, these factory buildings near the pier just collapsed on the workers inside. Oh, like, God. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's awful, but well, well done on the storytelling aspect of it. Woo! On that happy note. On that happy note. Uh, uh, hi, everybody. I guess welcome back. Um, <laughs> we'll keep you posted on what's going on with our schedule if we decide to change to a bi-weekly, meaning every two weeks, mm-hmm. uh, not not twice a week. Oh my God, no. not twice a week. No. Um, but we'll keep you posted on that. And um, yeah, it's just like we said, you know, life starting to kind of happen again. Um, yeah. I think and all that good stuff. Try to get back to week to week for as long as we can, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But this does take it. I mean, it's a lot of it's it's a lot of work to put these stories together, guys. Yeah. So I hope you enjoy them. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, on that note, stay weird, stay curious, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.